Okay, welcome to CineLit. Uh, my name is Adam Marsh and I am joined by resident expert Daryl Buxton today. Hello, Daryl. Hello, Adam. Hello, folks. And we are also delighted to welcome the return, the return, the triumphant return of Rebecca Taylor. Hey. Say hello, Rebecca. Hi, everyone. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> so it's uh, it's impendingly on us. Halloween is coming it's you know it's inevitable granted a lot of the country is in lockdown or is in some form of tiered lockdown system where people are wearing masks and the one holiday season where wearing a mask is a prerequisite here we are at halloween we should be all wearing masks we'll stop <laughs> so yeah so we thought with halloween we would we've got two two things happening it's black history month as well so we thought we could do something that combines black history month and Halloween. So we have for our sins and for you watch Blackula and scream Blackula scream for our podcast today. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so here we are. We're, we're going to talk about the black exploitation films Blackula from 1972 and Scream Blackula scream from 1973. Two films made very quick succession in the early 70s. Probably we should maybe explain a little bit what black exploitation is. Yeah, shall shall I give a? Yeah, let's I've, go. For I've it. got a little bit of background prepared, Adam. So, uh, yeah, the black exploitation trend um, started sort of around nineteen sixty nine seventy, and this was where major studios had noticed that they were getting uh, um, predominantly black audiences for certain movies. You know, um, sort of action thrillers and cop movies and things, and they thought, well, why why not make some of these with predominantly black casts? And, and black stars, you know, and and also the thing they did, which they were doing with the um, uh, the Godfather was made in the early seventies, and they they did this with that. They said we've got to get an Italian director to make the Godfather, which is why Francis Ford Coppola, who wasn't all that experienced, was given this massive massive project. And they sort of did the same with these new black films, the new black cinema. They sort of trawled through their their staff and looked to see if they got like assistant directors. Or, or people even lower down the pecking order who sort of knew their way around the film set and were African-American. So they were sort of hiring black directors to make the movies. And some of the films came out and they, they were smash hits. You know, you had films like Cotton Comes to Harlem, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Shaft, Superfly, films that are now seen as classic you know now in terms of horror movies they they decided having done sort of carp and gangster films and so on and also done films that were rooted in in the sort of black experience they sort of thought what do we do next and someone came up with the idea of doing black horror films now interestingly either side of the sort of black exploitation boom british filmmakers had done black-themed horror movies. There was one in uh, in 1966 called Naked Evil, and then there was a vampire comedy called Vampira in 1974. So you've got these sort of British bookends to the black horror trend. But in America, there was a string of these movies, and they kicked off really with the films that we're going to discuss today, Black Eela and Scream, Black Eela Scream, that were made by American international pictures. And there were lots and lots of vampire films aimed at a sort of youth or counterculture audience around this time in the early 70s too. So the idea of making a black vampire movie this is our starting point for our discussion today. Well, I think, I think the starting point with regards to the funding came with like what's your film about it's called blackula 
<laughs> give us the money. Yeah. You've got you built, built in audience. Well, there, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's yeah. just it feels like that. What if we do a black Dracula? Blackula, amazing! Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're greenlit. Off you go. Yeah, and, and what, what they what they tended to find once these films were made is that you were getting your horror audience in, you were getting your black audience in, but you were getting interested white viewers coming in as well. A lot of people were interested with films like Shaft and Superfly. They loved the soundtracks. There was a big white audience for soul music. And they were coming in to listen to the music. And we'll talk about Blackula's music in a moment as well. As I say, I've been quite flippant on the whole. It's called Blackula, give us the money, we'll shoot it. But it does feel that that's the origins of this film being made. And in some ways, even though we've just, I've just spent a good five minutes talking to you about the roots of black exploitation and the roots of horror, I feel this movie doesn't really sit comfortably in the black exploitation genre. It's it's relatively um, chaste, you know. Most black exploitation movies have got drugs and guns and nudity, left, right, and centre in these films. And uh, this one doesn't. This one's it has violence in it because it's a vampire movie, but it is generally quite friendly for audiences. It's not really anything too outrageous in it. It's um, I don't even know what the certificate is in this now yeah I, I would imagine it got a pg certificate in, in the states because this sort of fair tender to even yeah. more violent films sometimes did so yeah uh, so this is this is open for families to come yeah, and watch yeah. this film not a problem you know and it sort of plays like that as well absolutely to, to does point. i mean yeah. i felt it it felt more like a tv movie of that era it was definitely inspired or influenced by that early 70s LA movie scene with Count Yorga and things like yeah, that. and it came out the same year as The Night Stalker, which was made for the TV. The Night Stalker yeah, TV yeah. show. It's definitely got that vibe of being made in that LA, LA scene, which was recently um, done with The Love Witch, um, which was honoured that kind of period of um, horror movie making. So if you might have seen Love Witch but not seen Count Yorga, um, there's your little reference point. Sure. Yeah, what did you think to it, Becky? Because, I mean, I'm assuming you hadn't seen these films before before we, we agreed to do this podcast. Yeah, so I hadn't seen either film. Um, and to be honest, I'm not a mad lover of uh, black exploitation films. Um, but I really, enjoy, I really enjoyed um, these two films. And I think it might be on what you just mentioned in that they're quite tame for black exploitation films. Apart from some of the dialogue that's very... Um, suggestive and you know always referring to the female characters looks yeah. um it's very 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 I, I would say tamer than the other films I've seen and I kind of liked it it was kind of um it was just not to be taken seriously as most black exploitation films are yeah I, I really enjoyed it but on the other side of the coin, I found that the the um, link with actually Dracula being the person that creates the suffering for Blackula, I found that quite interesting. I'm um, sort of that that link, which I thought I don't know if I was thinking too much into it, but I thought there could be something to say about that. You know, the sense that the prince came to Dracula to ask him to help him suppress the, the slave trade and that in doing so he he, he became a, a slave forever really in the in the body of of black killer but yeah <laughs> i think they, they, they do have a bit of a stab at social commentary don't they yeah 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 um, well this was a big thing with roger corman who's a favorite of the podcast as as listeners will know and uh corman was working at aip 
prior to, to films like Blackula being made. He'd left by this point, but uh, Corman had sort of left the template for the, the AIP exploitation movie, which was, you know, a bit of nudity, a bit of action, a bit of blood and guts, you know, and always throw in a bit of social comment because the college crowd will love it, you know. Mm. And Blackula sort of follows on from that Roger Corman template, as a lot of the films made at this time do. But yeah, Becky's right in that it addresses the slave trade and it addresses possible abolition of that. And what we find out is that Dracula is not only the king of the vampires, but he's, he's a racist, yeah. So, uh, and and here's this black couple who who are aristocracy themselves, who sort of travel across to Transylvania to try and get his support. And as as you say, he he almost ends up being enslaved. You know, in in a sense, what then happens is he is imprisoned in a coffin, and that then is transported over to California, hundreds of years later, and he's 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 awoken. Uh, in traditional vampire fashion, you know, and he finds himself in this modern world. And the situation that he finds he's facing is pretty much the same as what he encountered in, in, in Dracula. He still finds that the black population have got this sort of suppression. And in the sequel film, Scream, Black, Scream, Blackula, Scream, he even addresses um, two, two pimps who... He, he sees their actions as being appalling and he actually gives them a lecture on the street before kicking their ass. Mm-hmm. He, he sort of lectures them about how what they're doing is basically enslaving their own class and their own creed, you know, and uh, he, he accuses them of effectively being modern-day slave masters and, uh, and then destroys them on, on the street, you know. So, uh, so, yeah, there is this social political sort of undercurrent to the movies and it's understated and it's often sort of suppressed by the um the chance to do some vampire action you know but it's there yeah i mean in some ways it is it is adhering to that formula of of the aip films which probably stops it ever elevating it above its title in some ways, you know, the title is always the best thing about it or the worst thing about it, yeah. depending the, the on which way you approach it. Interesting thing about that is the film is called Blackula to get an audience in because it's a great cool title. But he hates being called Blackula because that's a title that's been bestowed on him by Count Dracula, who, who, has, who has vampirized him and enslaved him. That's almost like a, um, a sort of plantation slavery movie where you've been given a, a brand by your slave master. You know, he's been called Blackula by his white domineering slave master. And it's a badge of embarrassment to him and it's a badge that he wants to fight against. He addresses himself throughout the films by his own title, which is Prince Mamu Walde. And he gets everybody to refer to him as Mamu Walde, his, his African name. And um, again, that's, that's interesting that they're selling the film as Blackula, as they sold the Frankenstein film as Blackenstein. But the character actually fights against that. It wouldn't have been surprising to me watching this film and it being called Blackula and watching it and then never referring to him as Blackula and it just being a title because it's about a black vampire. Mm. But they do go out <laughs> of their way to actually have somebody in the film say the words so they can stick it in the trailer. So somebody in the trailer can say Blackula yeah, and, yeah. and we've got that, we've got that shot. Yeah. And him running around in the cape. 
Well, there is that as well. But like, they, you know, you don't have to actually call him that. You can, it's just drawing attention to the fact. Um, it's he's an interesting choice for Blackula, isn't he? Yeah, William um, Marshall. William Marshall, because he's a very Shakespearean actor, mm. and and he'd he'd done a lot of TV. He'd worked on TV. He's and, probably you know, yeah. He's probably better known to a generation of children for being uh, the king of cartoons in Pee Wee Herman's Pee Wee's Playhouse. I mean, yeah. that's how I know him from. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. But um, he'd, he'd done TV over here, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd worked in cop and spy shows and things over here whenever they needed a black character. And if they needed particularly a distinguished one, someone to play like an African diplomat or something or the king of a small country, you know, they'd, they'd get him and he'd fly over and he'd do it. And it's been pointed out that he's not your typical black exploitation figure, you know. Mm. Normally you'd get everybody sort of dressed in in really cool clothes you know sort of mustard colored wide brimmed hats and things and great kipper ties and stuff you know flares and so on and he comes in as you say becky he's wearing a cape because vampires do but that's the one thing that gives him a sort of flamboyance and makes him fit into 1972 you know everyone accepts him because who's this cool guy in the cape we've never thought of wearing a cape before you know but then then he opens his mouth and they're all giving it the jive talk, and he comes out talking like Othello, you know, and, and he sort of doesn't fit, but because he doesn't fit, it gives him a very stately, very aristocratic present, you know, and the women in particular all sort of fall for that, and they all, who's, who's, who's this amazing guy, you know, he's different to, to the guys that my brother knocks around with on the street corner, you know, or the local drug dealers or whatever. He becomes this interesting figure because of that, and I think around this time, Hammer were trying to get Christopher Lee's Dracula into the modern world. They made two modern-day Dracula movies, and Christopher Lee, the films are good, but Christopher Lee just doesn't fit into them at all. And they're almost em- embarrassed to bring Dracula out into 1970s society, you know. So he stays sort of skulking around in a church or trapped in, in an office block, which he hardly ever steps out of. Whereas Blackula... He's, he's joining parties, he's, he's seen the nightlife. He is, and he loves art, and he goes to art exhibitions and things. He's very cultured, and he's chatting to people about old African art and things like that. He even drinks, he drinks. You, you get Bella Lugosi says, I never drink wine. He does. Blackula's yeah. in there, he's opening the claret, you know, and uh, they make the obvious gags about, oh, this, this, one, this one looks a bit like blood or something, you know. But yeah, he's, he's right in there opening the alcohol, you know, and these sort of doing things that other vampires don't do. So it was a hit, I'm assuming, um, because they made a second one. Yeah. But that's never that's never a given, considering AIP, where they're probably shooting back to back and shooting quickly. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and as I say, I think the soundtrack may have uh, contributed to the success, because there's, there's a great soundtrack by Gene Page, which is funky as it gets. It's absolutely marvellous. I, I, I hold my hand up and say... I'm, I'm the proud owner of the soundtrack album, you know. And not only is there this great funky Gene Page soundtrack, but there are three songs and they're performed on screen in the film by the Hughes Corporation, who the following year invented disco with, the, with their hit uh, Rock the Boat. Mm. But this is pre-Rock the Boat, it's pre-disco, it's when they're still a soul trio. And the songs that they do are, again, just fabulous. And they do them on screen which might be a bit unfortunate, actually, because um, 
The songs are superb, but you actually get to see them dancing in the nightclub and they're not the best dancers in the mm-hmm. world. So that's got its own entertainment value, I think. But yeah, the, the music for the film is just fantastic. You know, so you've got that mixture of sort of funk on the soundtrack, but this sort of aristocracy and this, this elevated idea of this sort of uh, lordly, kingly vampire at the centre of all the action. And the two play across against each other really well, I think. I think yeah, it's one of those interesting ones where you get in, in a lot of Hollywood movies at the time where they were trying to bring in black culture into their films. You'd have like, it's a white cop movie and he has to go down to Harlem yeah. to check something out and they film a nightclub scene in Harlem and it's the most cringeworthy thing you can <laughs> see where they just don't get it at all. It's just like, oh, it's terrible. This is almost like an inversion of that where you have these amazingly vibrant nightclub scenes and uh, amazingly funky music, and then you have them go back to the cop shop. (laughs) You have them go back to the police station, and it feels so odd and weird and and white and white and but it just feels even even from the from the black and white side it just feels like you don't know how to shoot a cop scene do you yeah well the this this comes back to the point i made earlier about how the studios they they came up with this idea of let's make black movies and and what they said was let's hire black directors to do them so they got william crane to direct this now, William, all William Crane had done in film before was um, he was an intern on a film called Brother John in 1971, and someone obviously pointed at him on on the lot one day and said, "Oh, we're making Blackula. He'll do." You know, had he, he not done the Mod Squad before that on he'd, TV? He'd, he'd worked in TV. Yeah, mm. he'd done Mod Squad and a couple of other shows. Yeah, so he was a sort of face who was known, but basically he was sort of picked out in the way that Coppola was. Coppola had got a little bit of mm. movie experience, had made two or three films he'd done sort of Finian's rainbow and stuff but yeah the idea that he would get to make the godfather was was unthinkable other than the fact that he was italian and Mm. that's what they wanted it was him or martin scorsese you know so william crane was sort of plucked out and and plonked behind the camera on blackula and called the shots but because of that i think that may be why you, you you're getting a more authentic black experience in the movie and um Instead of it being the cliches, uh, there are cliches there, you know, but they're a little bit more understated than usual. Yeah, I mean, but those those cop scenes still feel like something off Police Squad. Oh, yeah. And again, this is William Crane's TV background coming in, I think. You know, that's why you've got that. So we had a black director for the first one, which they rectified, I guess, (laughs) in in true Hollywood fashion. They changed their, their minds on having black directors be the driving force of of these kind of films fairly quickly into the into the run of black exploitation i guess and for the sequel screen blackula screen we had a white director and he's the director of uh, count yorga count that's right yes yeah. so do we know what the thinking was behind that was it just oh this guy's done a vampire movie before you'll be perfect i think he'd had a hit with count yorga and then there'd been a sequel return of count yorga um, he was seen as a safe pair of hands, yeah. Having said, hey, we're making a black movie, let's get a black director, it was, we're making a vampire movie, let's get the guy who's who's the vampire expert. So we got a sequel, and the budget levels, I guess, is upped. I'm not sure Slight, whether you see on that on it, screen, yeah, but yeah. You know, for an AIP movie, it's definitely upped. And the cast gets rounded out. We get Pam Greer yeah. in the second one. Pam Greer 
arguably the leading lady of exploitation. At the time she did scream Blackula Scream, I think she was sort of just just emerging then. She was coming out of doing bit parts, she'd had a couple of leads or semi-leads, and this was the same year that she did Coffee, which was like her big breakthrough movie, and then led to Foxy Brown, which sort of exploded. But um, yeah, Pam was a sort of known quantity at that time, but she was still at the point where one she would do one film where she was sort of the lead, or at least the lead female, and then she'd maybe go back to a film where she was sort of seventh on the bill and playing a bit part. I mean, the same year she did this, she was in a film called Twilight People, where she basically played... A half woman, half panther. She steals the movie, even even in a role like that. She's the best thing in the film, but she's relegated way down the cast to playing this panther woman. And then she'd do coffee, and then she'd do scream, Blackula scream. So she's not quite Pam Greer, black exploitation superstar at this point. But she's getting there. But she, I mean, what I mean is she's a named quantity at that point. She'd yeah, done yeah. leading she's, roles. She's big enough to, to yeah. her name on the poster would have drawn in yeah. more of an audience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what, you, sure what are your thoughts? I mean, I love, I love Pam Grey. I think we need to probably do a podcast dedicated to Pam Grey. I'm, I'm well up for doing that. Um, but what's, what's your thoughts on Pam Grey uh, being of a younger generation? Well, I think that she's very cool and like kick ass in the black exploitation films. Again, I'm not a fan of the subgenre for for that because it's just kind of like tends to be around, you know, prostitution and drugs and things like that. But Pan Greer as the black exploitation icon and as a, a black female uh, icon, I think she's really cool, really kick ass. Yeah. I think also during <laughs> that period of time as well. Yeah. You think about who, who who was headlining movies, who could who in nineteen seventy five, what female could headline a movie in Hollywood at that period. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's not many black no, or white. They're still on. Yeah, they're still yeah. on. Yeah, exactly. And Pam Greer was one of them. Yeah, she was headlining Hollywood movies in the '90s as well. Yeah. So, so yeah, she's had more success than a lot of white actresses. So, yeah. Becky, to pick you up on a point there, um, you talked about not liking black exploitation because of a lot of the subject matter and so on. What did you think about the scene with Blackula and the pimps in Scream Blackula Scream? Then, because the character sort of addresses that whole issue. And he's almost saying to the audience, you know, okay, there's a character here on screen who hates all that stuff as well. Yeah, I'm not not sure what to think of that. Yeah, because that's what I'd say, like the thing that was different about it is that they're very, is more intelligent and like, you know, a gentleman and like, because... In black colour, I thought, oh, you know, he's going to bed all the women and everything. And in the second film, it's just, I like that image. He seems to have a sort of responsibility and he's got like a a cultural standing, you know. And he's there almost representing a certain lifestyle and hating what his people have become, you know, and and commenting on that. But, of course, what, what you get there is... In in order to have a character who is berating and criticising the pimps, you've got to have the pimps on screen as well. So it's almost having their cake and eat it. So that's a method for the whole, the, the two films in itself, because Blackula is a sympathetic character in many ways. You know, he was he was a prince in Africa, made a vampire by Dracula, by a racist Dracula, and and he is now eternally suffering. Equally, he does kill a lot of people in these movies. 
So yeah, yeah. <laughs> what can you- yeah, what what are we? What is the message? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that there's something in that. In that he's having to kill all these people because he's a vampire due to Dracula, per se, the white man. So he's in this cycle of suffering. Um, so yeah, in a sense, yes, he's killing all these people. But I think the the image that he creates is even though he does go around killing people, he's not a scary image to them. He's portrayed as like another brother as such you know and he's he's almost (laughs) killing against his will you know he's he's trying to fight this you know yeah I've got to admit I you know although it's great to have a sort of cultured character stepping into the world of the black exploitation film when they do the black exploitation cliches I think they play on them very well there's the character who Blackula vampirizes or who Mama Walde vampirizes who then becomes like his, his Renfield type assistant and there's that wonderful scene where he he looks in a mirror for the first time and he's he's got these amazing cool duds on. He's got this incredible suit on, you know, and a great tie and everything and a waistcoat. And he's done his hair really well and everything. And he looks in the mirror and there's nothing there. And he sort of turns back to Blackula and he sort of says, is it, is it going to be like, I can't see myself, you know, I, I want to see my cool clothes. I want to know how I look. And, and Blackula has to um, give him the bad news that, no, you'll, you'll never see yourself again, you know. It's, all, it's almost too much for this guy to bear, you know, that he'll, he'll never see himself looking cool again. So he's, he's really good. Yeah, he's Larson who plays, like, the, the Willis character. Wallace, yes, Wallace. He's, he's great. In the first movie, I really like the, um, the brother character played by the, the great uh, G2 Kumbuka. He's the guy in the first Blackula who keeps calling Prince Mamu Walde one strange dude <laughs> and and uh, i think he steals the show in that as as the sort of the cliche black exploitation character but yeah it's great that they sort of get one in each film and they sort of play against uh, william marshall almost and they're quite close to him as well mm. they they sort of almost play off him it's as though they're necessary you've, you've got this shakespearean guy in there who's doing all this great sort of authority filled sort of dialogue and then against them it's almost like you've got chuck d and flavor Flav in public enemy you've got one <laughs> one who's the voice of authority and one who's the clown you know mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i think also as well with having said all that what i do like about black exploitation is it's very proud to be black very Afrocentric and not conforming to, to Eurocentric looks. So I think that with the mirror scene that you said, I think it's like, oh, you know, you're a cool dude, you know, you love soul music, you know, you got your Afro, you got your outfit. And that is a part of what I would say I do like about exploitation is that they're very proud to be black in the film. Yeah, I think I think it's one of those things. I remember, I remember when we first showed a, a black exploitation film here, people in the office saying, "Are you allowed to do that? Because it's exploitative, isn't it?" I'm like, "Well, you're misunderstanding what black exploitation means yeah. <laughs> for a start. It's exploiting the audience rather than exploiting the people on the screen." If, and, and I think these movies are very much like, well, when we get a film nowadays in Hollywood with a predominantly black cast. People talk about it. It's all over Twitter. It's all over Facebook. How amazing. I'm, I'm incredible. A full black cast. These films were doing that in the 70s with a full black cast and... As, as routine. As routine, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was the norm. 
and, and it was accepted by a white audience and exactly. a young audience. Yes, exactly. So I think these films are very important from a historical point of view, yeah. just yeah. to show that they actually... Are significant. These yeah. are very yeah. significant movement of, uh, of cinema and they're incredibly entertaining <laughs> with amazing soundtracks. Other black horror films that followed in their wake, and a lot of very interesting titles. There's a very um, arty one that, that sort of stood outside of the exploitation trend and it's another vampire film called Ganja and Hess directed by Bill Gunn and that was actually remade by Spike Lee about five years ago as uh, The Sweet Blood of Jesus and I think both Ganja and Hess and The Sweet Blood of Jesus are both fabulous films if you know they're they they sort of stand outside of this trend really I think they're they're sort of superior to the the sort of grubby exploitation sort of area the that the area. meat and potatoes yeah, of, yeah, uh, yeah. They're, they're aspiring to something else really but there's a lot of fun to be found in the 70s black exploitation horrors there's a great movie called Sugar Hill which is about uh, someone whose whose boyfriend who runs a nightclub is killed by gangsters and she goes to the local voodoo priestess to find out how to get revenge and of course she she says well you could raise an army of zombies you know as as you do so that that's what happens in that one. It's a great, great, really entertaining film. There's there's a Black Frankenstein movie called Blackenstein, which is as awful as its title. <laughs> um, there's a film that's actually been suppressed by Warner Brothers for over 40 years called Abbey, which was a black exorcist. And amazingly, they didn't call it the Blacksorcist. No. They, they called it Abbey. Well, um, Abbey's got the star of Blackula in it. Yes, it does. It, so. uh, it does. Uh, William Marshall, mm-hmm. who plays the exorcist in the... He plays the black exorcist. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, How they resisted uh, doing that. I, I know, I know. No but, clue. Uh, it's, it's perhaps fortunate that they did, I think. But Abbey, the one film out of all the exorcist rip-offs, it was the one that Warner Brothers picked on and sued. And so it's, it's, it's never really had a proper release. And it's, it's a really good little film. And William Marshall, who's fabulous in the Black Hiller films, is great in that. He's the real voice of authority in that. There's a film called House on Skull Mountain, which is a sort of Scooby-Doo-ish sort of old dark house movie with a predominantly black cast. There's a film called JD's Revenge, which is a, a sort of half-gangster movie, half-possession movie. Now, William Crane, the director of Blackula, also directed a film called Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde, which has got a catchpenny title. It's a terrible title, but is perhaps the best of these films. It's very, very cheap. And if you can't get over the low budget, you, you might find that the paucity of... The production puts you off, but it's actually a really good, really socially conscious black exploitation horror film, and I, I highly recommend it to you. Some of the films come across as they're a subgenre. They weren't making it to be the big thing it is. They're making it for the audience that that you know serving that audience that's reflected on the screen. I don't know if as it got bigger, it changed. I think any exploitation scene whether that's black exploitation or whatever, you have that because they're being made so quickly to supply and demand. 
you get a reflection of society yeah. that you yeah. don't get in Hollywood films and you don't get in films that take three years of development and 15 pages of notes. So you get these films that were made in six months and were in the drive-ins within, within two months after that. So you get that reflection of the times yeah. within yeah. inherently in these exploitation films, which yeah. is, I think is I, fascinating. I think ultimately what happened, though, is that the, the scene sort of died out and I, I, think, I think that's a financial thing more than anything. I don't think that was affected by social trends or anything. It was just the film, you know, the audience has got bored with them and the, the films got cheaper and cheaper, the budgets got lower and lower, so less people wanted to see them. And eventually it all sort of fizzled out. What you then got was was black characters being co-opted into other exploitation movies. And of course, you, you then got the cliche of the slasher horror movies of the late 70s, early 80s, where the black character was always noted as being the first one to die. That became the cliché. But, of course, this is at a time, also, don't forget, when Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy are the two biggest stars in Hollywood. So the exploitation field may have been killing off its black characters and and not giving the the actors the best roles but hollywood in general was 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 looking at things in a different way so it's a very confused sort of period really and now of course what you've got in the field of horror movies is you've got jordan peele who's um, who's revived the whole black horror movie experience has brought it right into the mainstream and has won oscars with it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool, yes, thank you very much for listening. Once again, I want to thank uh, Quad and the BFI for helping support these podcasts. Uh, There'll be more further reading on our website, so please check out the supporting materials, and we will see you again in a few weeks' time. Take care.